So Money Episode 769, Brian Portnoy, author of The Geometry of Wealth. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Can money buy happiness? Really? Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We're talking to behavioral finance expert and author, Brian Portnoy. Brian is the author of the new book, The Geometry of Wealth, How to Shape a Life of Money and Meaning, talking about how money might not be the source of happiness, but it can definitely fund contentment. Hmm. Brian is currently the Director of Investment Education at Virtus Investment Partners, and he has spent the last 25 years as an educator, an investor, and strategist. He holds a doctorate from the University of Chicago. And coming up, his three-step method for achieving true wealth It involves shapes. And how much money is really enough money for you, for me? Here is Brian Portnoy. Brian Portnoy, welcome to So Money. It's great to have you here. And congratulations on your latest book, The Geometry of Wealth. Can't wait to dig in. Thank you. It's great to be here. You have spent much of your career helping people understand how to best put their money to work so that they can be fulfilled and find fulfillment and, you know, f- for lack of a better word, ha- become happy. You know, we don't often want to correlate um, money decisions with happiness. But at the end of the day, money is a very powerful tool to bring us the, the satisfaction and the fulfillment that we all seek in life. But it's not such a simple thing to to figure out. You wrote this book because you obviously have a lot of pers- uh, professional experience around this, but this was also, I, I read, a, a, a personal draw. So what was it from your personal life that made you so interested in uh, how to shape a life of money and meaning? Well, you know, I've got a, a wife and, and three uh, little kids. Well, maybe not so little anymore, but, uh, uh, you know, 11, 14, and 15 years old. And as I try to be a better father uh, to them and and try to provide guidance. And I, I look out into the world, needless to say, things are changing very quickly. You know, 15, 20 years ago, Google wasn't a thing. So I fold forward 15 or 20 years and I think, geez, what, what are my kids going to do and how can I, you know, move them in the right direction? There's a there's a good chance that the industries that they'll work in, um, in, in years from now don't even exist today. So how, how do you provide good advice um, in that sort of circumstance? So the personal motivation for the geometry of wealth was trying to get come up with the framework about how money fits into a happy life and not just investing, but your career and saving and spending behavior and, and, and bring that together in a way that's going to be accessible uh, to them and, and, and not technical. One of the distinctions that you make in your book is rich versus wealthy. Can you explain why it's important to make that differentiation? Because we yeah, often use, those words are very interchangeable to, to many of us, myself included. Right. Um, and I, I do try to, you know, th- that's the first big fork in the road, uh, rich versus wealthy. 
I wanted to create the distinction between having more money and finding uh, happiness or, or even joy or uh, contentment in life. To, to me, rich is having more money, um, you know, so accumulating either more money per se or, or the things that, that money can buy. And what I've, uh, what I've seen in, in my own studies and research and in my workflow in, in the field of behavioral finance is that, you know, psychologists have demonstrated, social psychologists, neuroscientists as well, have, have demonstrated that as you accumulate more and more, you don't necessarily become happier. They have something in the literature, an awkward phrase called the hedonic treadmill, which basically says that we become accustomed to everything in life. So even as you get a higher salary, even as you buy that nicer car, as you go on that better vacation, the, the, the psychic benefits of those things fade relative, relatively quickly. However, the brain is wired for two different forms of happiness. One is that sort of short-term day-to-day, but the other is sort of a longer-term sense of, is my, life, is my life going okay? It's what I call in the book, reflective happiness. You step, step back and, uh, and, and reflect upon your life. So for me, pivoting from rich to wealthy, wealthy is the ability to underwrite a life of meaning, however you choose to define that. And the book walks through um, a lot of the nuances on that. We can, we can get into the details. But to me, uh, to be rich is just to have more, which does not have the benefits many people think it does. To be wealthy is to engage in what I'll call funded contentment, um, the, the, the ability to afford the things that really uh, stoke that deeper sense of joy. I do want to get into the specifics with you and, and, and what you mean by sort of the geometry of wealth. I think it's really fascinating and I love that it, it's very simple. So listeners, you're in for a simple exercise. But I want to touch on what you said earlier about this concept of accumulation. What is enough? How do we arrive at quote unquote enough? I'm going to ask a very, <laughs> I think, big question, but one that I think is on a lot of people's minds, especially when they think about retirement or even, even current life. Like, do I need to really make more than what I'm making now? I just wanted to ask that because that to me was also a huge question mark. Yeah, and it's a great question, and it's one that I still grapple with. Um, I, I write about the concept of enough throughout the book, but I, I'll admit, I, I don't think I've entirely figured that out. Um, I, I'll make a couple comments. The, the first is that the concept of enough is meaningless unless you've taken a little bit of time to think about what your deeper, sense, uh, d- deeper sources of contentment are. Okay, and we're going to maybe get into what those are, but they're related to your social connections and being good at your job and, 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 and a few other things. So um, you, you can't really think about what enough is until you have some sort of uh, destination and some sort of plan to get there. The, the tough thing and, and why I still struggle with the idea, even you know, well after having finished this book, is that we've got two impulses um, that are deeply wired in our brains. We have an impulse for more. We want to push forward. We want to grow. And especially uh, American American consumers and workers with college educations, we want higher. We want better. We want to be faster. And that that's great. And as I said, in some cases, more doesn't produce great things. But in other cases, it's just part of being alive and being aspirational. And it's a wonderful thing. So more is not uh, – it is a four-letter word, but it's not always a bad thing. Um, 
but there's also this instinct for enough, that sense of presence, uh, stillness. Um, we can even talk about mindfulness. And, and we get great joy uh, in, in uh, being able to uh, savor what we have versus what we might have in the future. More versus enough really aren't reconcilable at any moment in time. They're sort of two different modes of thinking. And I've come to believe that there's a rhythm between the two, between more and enough, that each of us, uh, if we really want to push forward um, on, on leading a happier life, we, we need to come to terms at which point we want more and which point we're going to settle for enough in the good sense. And maybe it's that you have an aspiration for more in certain parts of your life, and then you have fullness and contentment in others so that um, maybe the, the, the trick is to, to identify the areas that you want to continue pushing to get um, more. I don't know, maybe because then I think it, otherwise it could be very overwhelming, sometimes even depressing. Uh, it is. It is. Um, you know, there are plenty. The American Psychological Association came out just a few years ago and showed uh, conclusively that by far and away, money is the most uh, stressful um, topic in people's lives. Uh, it, it, it's an overwhelming topic. It, it's one of the reasons um, uh, I love what I do for a living, which is trying to you know, simplify the, 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 the complex world of money. Part of the challenge, uh, and I don't get into this too much in the book, but it's there, which is that we, we live in a comparative world. We're, we're judging ourselves relative to others. So often that quest for more overwhelms the satisfaction of enough because we look across the street or we look down the hall at work and we see things that make us feel like we haven't done enough. And I will, you know, uh, hypothesize and speculate. And I think you've talked about this in some of your other podcasts. So, social media isn't the healthiest thing for many us, many of us, as we look at the airbrushed and polished lives of uh, uh, of others. It's very hard to um, be satisfied with what you have when it appears that everybody is moving forward. You called your book the geometry of wealth, and you use actual shapes to help us understand how to achieve a life of meaning, a life of money and meaning. And you use a circle, a triangle, and a square. Can you walk us through that a little bit? And then I want to ask you about all your personal financial musings, yeah. uh, but yeah. would really like for you to describe that for us because um, I think it's, it's so valuable. Yeah. Uh, the name of the game is simplification. All right. So um, I, I think about the conversations I have in my money life, both personally and professionally, and, and there's sort of a two-step routine. First, we want to go from complex to simple, and then we want to go from simple to easy. Uh, it, it's not hard to convince anyone uh, that the world of money is complex. You know, look at modern capital markets and um, how quickly they move. If you turn on CNBC Bloomberg Television, you know, you'll have 30 data points in front of you moving quickly. It's, it's really quite overwhelming. And, and our brains were not wired to process this type of information. Our brains developed more than 100,000 years ago to focus on, on other things. So the key is, is simplification, cutting through the noise and capturing what matters. What I wanted to do with the geometry of wealth is basically come up with a very simple narrative that someone can remember, they can, um, uh, they, they can put it on um, 
the, the, the back of a business card and just keep it in their wallet and appreciate that, in my view, there's only three steps that are necessary toward um, achieving true wealth, meaning that ability to underwrite a, a, a meaningful life or funded contentment. We need to um, uh, think about our purpose. Uh, we need to set broad priorities. And then we need to make tactical decisions. And what I do in the book is, is, is go into details on each of those. The reason I uh, assign a circle to thinking about our purpose is that we know that we're never done. The protagonist of the book, but I think in my life generally, is the adaptive self. We're always trying to figure stuff out. You know, there's the old line that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? So we um, are always adapting to new environments, both good and bad. And so the circle kind of represents that journey. The triangle represents three priorities, sides, three priorities. And, and then we have the square, which uh, uh, simplifies investment decision-making and, and boils down our investment decisions to uh, four main principles or, 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 or four main issues. One of them is the growth potential we find in our investments. The second is the emotional pain of holding those investments through, uh, through thick and thin, through, through the ups and downs. The, the third of four is where any particular new investment fits into what we have, what I call fit. And then the fourth out of four in the square is what I call flexibility, which is can we change our mind when we uh, take on a mortgage or invest in a mutual fund or engage in a whole number of different financial transactions? Are we stuck uh, with where we are? Or um, if we feel like we've made a mistake, can we move on? the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, they use real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your house. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24 7 by live security professionals. You can set it up yourself with no tools needed, or they can do it for you, and it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com/slash so money. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash so money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. Of all those geometric shapes, what do you think is the hardest? I find purpose to be a little challenging at times because I know what my priorities are. Um Decisions seem a little more straightforward to me, but purpose just seems so ominous. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the biggie. I mean, the book moves from the most abstract to the most specific, and it moves, I think, from the most important to the least important. I'm not going to say that the investments you make, the financial decisions you make aren't important. Hardly have devoted my career to making better, uh, helping others make better financial decisions. But what I've seen um, both personally and professionally is that uh, people take, I'll say, the easy road out by focusing primarily on investing and the market and the economy and their portfolio. And, and they've lost track or, or, 
or they've never even taken stock of, well, what is it that they're trying to accomplish to begin with? Um, I'm a big believer that we have control over our own story in life and that the narrative that we create, even though it's going to change over time, a, a little bit of thought can make a big difference. And if we've thought about what we're really trying to get done, what we're trying to underwrite in life, a lot of the financial stuff, uh, uh, the details, the weeds, it, it, it kind of falls into place in a, in a pretty fascinating way. Well, I'd love to explore your life story, Brian, specifically your money story. And I often ask guests to take us to a time, a place growing up when they feel they got some sort of financial education or story or lesson or experience. Um, our sponsor for the show is Chase Slate, and they did a study recently that found that a majority, over half of families have had a money conversation with their kids. So for you growing up as a kid, what was that? What if any story do you have around money that you think is even till t- to today really significant? Yeah. I mean, I- I'll tell a story, an honest story, which is not a great one, which is that my parents argued all the time about money. And I wouldn't say that along the way. Uh, there, uh, there were any great lessons that were explicitly uh, communicated to me in terms of sitting down and, and talking about investing and saving. Um, you know, grew up in a comfortable uh, middle or upper middle class home in, in a nice community outside of Pittsburgh. Um, but my initial experience with money uh, as a younger person was that it could be a great source of stress. So I think that part of why I've ended up where I am now is because I feel like those conversations can go, they can go a lot better. Um, you know, I've learned different, uh, other, uh, many other lessons uh, along the way over the course of my, my, my career, but that was my initial foray into money. And I don't think it needs to be stressful as uh, many find it. What have been some ways that you've overcome the perhaps limiting beliefs that you had around money because you grew up in an environment where money was a source of stress, maybe that carried with you into adulthood and showed up as an adult. I'm just curious if you had any moments as an adult then later where you had a reconciliation with that past. Yeah, a big one was when I decided to make a, a big left turn in my career. Um, I, I went into academia, I did a doctorate at the University of Chicago, and that is not a, a lifestyle um, that has much uh, money associated with it. Uh, it does not pay very well. So I lived on relatively little money during graduate school. And as I was transitioning to become a professor and had done relatively well in the academic job market, getting some good tenure track offers at, at, at premier universities. I stepped back and asked some hard questions of myself in terms of, okay, is this really the lifestyle that you want to lead? Not only in terms of a pretty lean salary, but also a very, you know, movable uh, lifestyle where, you know, you're going to be at one university, but if it doesn't work out there, you need to go somewhere else. And, and, and all in, I, I had to go through a, a reckoning where I was having relative, you know, to my expectations and relative to others, quite a fair amount of success. You know, I was, quote unquote, good at my job, um, but I wasn't happy at my job. And so um, not just the salary, but the lifestyle generally that I had sort of bought into without a lot of thought, um, it dawned on me that that's not where I wanted to end up. And by by luck, uh, 
mostly maybe by a little bit of skill. I, I got my first job out of uh, post-academia at an investment firm called Morningstar, I'm sure that I know you're familiar with. Sure. And I got very lucky um, with not only the work I was doing, but the relationships that I formed there that I was pretty quickly to get up uh, to speed on not only investing basics, but how to have a really healthy toward uh, money. And that's that stuck with me um, nearly 20 years later. One of the things that you talk about in your book is not just how to achieve fulfillment, but how to maintain it, how to maintain being wealthy, right? Like that's, it's like you can lose weight, but how do you keep it off? Um, So this brings me to the question of habits. What are some good habits, maybe some that you practice to uphold the geometry? Right. Uh, One of the um, uh, I think most important uh, pieces of uh, pieces of advice I can give to people is to automate as as many good decisions as possible. So you know, as a student of behavioral finance and neuroscience, and you know, have some sense of uh, how bad we are generally at, at making decisions about money. The more decisions we have to make in the moment, where we've got to think about a bunch of different things to to make sure that we're doing the right thing the more likely it is that we're going to mess up. So let me give you a specific example. Um, uh, people who enroll in automatic savings programs in their workplace through a 401k or 403b tend to have much better money outcomes in life. So uh, that means that you, you make a decision right from the get-go that you're going to put a little bit of your salary away into a retirement account. And then you don't have to think about it again. If you had to imagine a different scenario where every two weeks someone from HR called you and said, hey, do you want to contribute to your 401k uh, this time? Probably most of the time you would say yes, but maybe there's some financial stress or maybe you wanted to save a little, you know, you wanted to spend a little bit more on a slightly nicer vacation. You could say, you know what, I'm going to take a a pay period off or maybe a month or two off. That's uh, not a good thing. The more we can automate those savings decisions, the, the, the better case that we're in. Second quick example is that those who work with financial advisors tend to have better outcomes than those who don't. And it's not because, respectfully, the, the uh, financial advisor is a money group. They don't know any better than anyone else what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or 10 years in the market. But what they can do is help you set up a plan and help, uh, help you stick to it. Because we do, during volatile times, we have an urge to retreat from danger, which means we want to sell uh, uh, things in our investment portfolios that, that aren't doing well, even though it might be a time to buy instead of sell. When we work with somebody uh, outside of our immediate family, coach, really should think about advisors as coaches, um, then we can end up with that decision discipline that we probably couldn't end up with on our own. I couldn't agree more. I think that what we're seeing too in the marketplace is the shift of the financial advisors who are really tapped into the the sort of uh, paradigm shift, you know, people are having with respect to money. Like we're not, we don't need someone to tell us whether to buy Google or this index fund or that ETF, but we do need some handholding. We need to know that things are going to be okay. And, but more like, what are some ways to, you know, mitigate risk and help us achieve our goals and, and, you know, figure out what our purpose is perhaps. And I think that 
you're kind of in the sweet spot where you've got that um, behavioral background coupled with money. It's so important. I, I, I hope so. I mean, the, the behavioral lesson is something I pr- proselytize uh, every week in the financial advice business. And the industry, to your point, is changing in a positive direction. But it's changing slowly. You know, uh, I know that uh, historically this has been a brokerage business, right? It's about buying and selling securities. That is the last thing on the checklist to worry about. Um, Much prior in the process, like we've talked about, you got to have some sense of what brings you joy in life. And then you got to have a plan. Um, You know, my big thesis is that purpose and practice have to be thoughtfully calibrated if you really want to have an enjoyable money. All right, let's do some so money fill in the blanks and and just maybe end on a light note. So I start a sentence and then you just finish it. The first thing that comes to mind. All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is pay off my mortgage. All right. Because it's just emotionally tolling or. Um, I think that um, uh, debt of any kind, including mortgage debt, uh, can undermine, you know, your financial flexibility. And we live debt free other than a, a mortgage. I uh, I would like for that note to to go away. It would be sort of one big step forward in terms of uh, true financial independence. Awesome. Uh All right. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Books. I'm I'm a total nerd. (laughs) Uh, I I love reading, writing and reading to me. They're sort of the same part of the same exercise. Um, I spend a ridiculous amount of money on books. Uh, My office is filled with books I haven't read yet. I doubt I'll be able to get to, to all of them. But, um, you know, the idea that you can insert yourself into big conversations that have been going on uh, for thousands of years about really uh, fascinating and fun and interesting and socially relevant topics, you, you could just jump on in with all the great thinkers. I, I think it's um, I think it's one of the coolest things about being alive. Spoken like a true academic. <laughs> Still, yeah. Um, you like fiction or mostly nonfiction? I, I read mostly nonfiction. I, I, I do always have a, a couple fiction books going um, so that I can lighten up a little bit and, and enjoy a good detective tale or, or, <laughs> or, or something like that. But um, yeah, I um, where I am in my life and my career right now, you know, I, I read a lot of history. Um, you know, all of the stuff that I've been researching for this book in terms of uh, uh, neuroscience and social psychology, not the technical journals, but there's so many great books now uh, that have, you know, give us unbelievable perspective on the way the human brain works, um, the way we all get along or don't get along, as it were. Uh, it's, um, there, there, there's, I, there's a lot more uh, for me to learn. The, the, the more I read, the more I realize how much I don't know, and that motivates me to keep going. I love that it motivates you. I think it would frighten me, but <laughs> yeah. there's so much I don't know. I have no, yeah. there's not enough hours in the day to catch up. Oh, um, yes. How about this? When I donate, I like to give to blank because. Well, um, uh, I like to give to, to charities that have a, a measurable um, and uh, nearly immediate impact on people's lives. 
So, you know, for example, um, my wife and kids and I are very active um, with a local food bank in Chicago called uh, Common Pantry. It's Chicago's oldest um, uh, uh, continuously running um, uh, food food pantry. And so my kids volunteer there to stock shelves. I, I've been on the board. Um, you know, we, we, we give some money. It's just down the street um, here on the north side of Chicago. And, and uh, a, a striking number of people in Chicagoland are so-called food insecure, which is a fancy term for hungry. They don't know where their next meal is going to come. Um, it infuriates me, uh, honestly, that um, in our wealthy society that you can still have families uh, who are hungry. And, you know, I, I've served meals to a lot of these folks uh, over the years. So anything that we can be doing to give money here and now to alleviate the pain of others and, and hopefully give them a leg up and an opportunity to grow and thrive, um, that's where I'm going to be writing the checks. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you can measure the way that your money is making an impact, I think that is um, really important for a charity to put up front and center. You know, like for, I love it when they're like, for every dollar, you will feed, you know, these yeah, many kids they, or something. Yeah. Those, uh, those metrics, they, you know, I like having those metrics. It makes, it makes it easier for me to, to wrap uh, my brain around like where, what is this money going to do? Exactly. Make a decision. Yeah. Um, All right. Last but not least, I'm Brian Portnoy. I'm so money because. Because I have created a career uh, that allows me to help people simplify their money lives and get to uh, a better place. I get feedback all the time in a variety of forms uh, that the advice or the perspective that I'm giving is, is helping uh, folks in a material way in, in the here and now. Uh, it makes me feel really good to know that I, I, I have the uh, capacity to do that. Well, thank you so much for writing the book and your great work in the personal finance space and behavioral finance specifically. Your book is called The Geometry of Wealth, How to Shape a Life of Money and Meaning. Congrats and have a great rest of your summer. Thanks. You too. You can learn more about Brian and his books at shapingwealth.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Brian Portnoy. His new book is called The Geometry of Wealth, and it is available wherever books are sold. 